notes from last week. You can cheat and look if you want. Anybody remember what they were? Any of them. It doesn't have to be all of them. I'll throw out one. We said we talked about context, right? All the rest of them began with C. Context, canon, covenant, character of God, and Christ, or Jesus Christ. So those are, the, those are kind of the five principles that we organized under studying the Old Testament. Now those are also applicable when we're talking about the New Testament largely, right? But those were the ones that we talked about under Old Testament. And when we talked about the New Testament, we had four principles that we thought, that we thought about. We talked about paying attention to genre, especially when we're in those New Testament books, those, the Gospels, the New Testaments and Acts, uh, the Gospels and Acts rather. Um, so we talked about that. We talked about keeping our eyes on Jesus in the Gospels, right? Um, in the epistles, which were those letters, uh, we talked about that indicative, imperative pattern that we see. And then we talked about applying, you know, especially in the New Testament, application is, is going to be a strong uh, and easy uh, way to study the Scriptures. So those are the things that we kind of talked about last week just by way of reminder. Um, we're gonna, this week we're going to look at genre a little bit more deeply. We, talked, we touched on it just a little bit with uh, some of the New Testament, New Testament conversation that we had last time, but we're going to talk more about this idea of genre. Does anybody want to take a stab? What, is, what does it mean? What do you think it means when we say genre? What is a genre? A category, category yep. Yeah. Yes, po- so poetry would be a genre. That's an example of a genre. A theme. We're certainly considering themes when we, th- when we talk about genre. Yep. Yeah, especially, especially when we talk about genres in the Bible. Because you have kind of general literary genres like poetry, right? Um, and we're not going to talk about this today, but within poetry in the Bible, we have particular kinds of poetry that we talk about. So we talk about imprecatory psalms. So those are the psalms where the, the person's like angry and just let's charge out and conquer the enemy, right? Or we have, you know, messianic psalms. And those, so the themes in those help us distinguish uh, amongst kind of those, particularly as we break genres down. We're not going to have time to go into that today. Uh, we're just going to have, we're going to be flying pretty high. But, uh, but those are good. Yeah. So here's, here's a, a definition of genre. Genre is a way of classifying something according to its type or style rather than its specific content or storyline. Let me say that again. Genre is a way of classifying something according to its type or style rather than its specific content or storyline. So that's why, we're, that's why it allows us to take different books from the Bible from different areas and classify them together. You know, narrative would be a big genre that, has, that spans both uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Right? We have narrative in the New Testament. We have narrative in the Old Testament. Luke 24:44 is printed at the top of your handout. And it says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In that verse, Jesus himself points out three different genres of Bible text. We have poetry in the Psalms, prophecy, and we have historical narrative because he invokes Moses. Right, So those are going to be the historical narrative books of the Old Testament. 
And we find him doing so within the context of another genre of writing, which is a gospel, right? Because this is from the Gospel of Luke. So, um, and that one is one we talked about last week where we had this kind of, a kind of biography that's going on there, right? It's not, it's narrative, but it's a, specifically it's a kind of biographical narrative. Um, so understanding genre is important because the genres impact our study of scripture. So identifying the kind of literature you're reading will give you critical clues on how to interpret its contents. So for example, imagine, imagine the strange conclusions you would come to reading a fairy tale with the assumption that it's a work of history. Or the confusion that would result from reading a technical manual like it was a love poem. Right? You just wouldn't do it. So the genre of what we're reading helps us to interpret the content that the author was trying to communicate. So before we, get, before we ever get into the actual text of a Bible passage, we need to understand what literary genre the text is in so that we can properly observe, interpret, and apply that text. So today, like I said, we're going to fly at a pretty high altitude as we look at this, so we won't be able to explain a lot of the nuances that go along with them, but what we want to do is kind of give you an overview of the main genres of Scripture and look through some passages to kind of give illustrations of them. So, and, you know, not this week, but in a coming class, I'll have some resources that if you guys are interested in, in digging more into how to study your Bibles and more into some of these topics, especially that we've only had a chance to touch on, we'll, uh, uh, that I'll have resources for you to be able to do that. <clears throat> so I want to look at the main genres found in the, what, what the main genres in the Bible are. Um, and this is point one on your handout. In general, we see that the Bible as having seven, seven genres, historical narrative, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic literature, gospel, and epistle. Of course, even though most books are primarily one genre, several of them may contain multiple. So in the, in the prophets, sometimes you see them addressing the, the, the people of Israel poetically. So you need to be aware of those things. But in general, the breakdown that, I, that you see in your handout with all the books kind of listed under each genre, that's what the main, kind of the main overarching genre is for each of the books. Okay. <clears throat> Now, it's important to note that the biblical authors themselves understood their writings to fall into specific genres. In other words, they wrote the way they did on purpose. Sometimes they'll even tell you what genre of literature they're writing to. I'm writing this letter to you. You know, that's something that Paul says frequently in the middle of his letters. I'm writing this to you as a letter. The genres we find in the Bible are also typical of the genres found in literature from biblical times. And it's clear some of the biblical authors deliberately used popular literary forms uh, that were present around them in order to make their points more clear. So, for example, the Ten Commandments reflect the structure of treaties that were often used by Near Eastern kings in that same time period. Or, if we look at the book of Revelation, which seems very strange to us now, uh, but it was a reflection of an apocalyptic genre that was very common at the time. So it would not have been nearly as difficult for the people who were originally receiving that letter to be able to interpret it and understand what, what, what the, uh, the author, who was John, meant when he was writing it. So we have all these different types of literature represented, but we also need to see that the Holy Spirit, who is God, inspired the whole Bible. 
That means that even though there are diverse genres, there is a single unified storyline. This makes the Bible an anthology. It has multiple human authors, about three dozen altogether, uh, diverse genres, and yet it's comprehensive and cohesive, and, many, and its many stories tell only one overarching and larger story. Questions about the overarching idea of genre and how it may start to help us understand a scripture passage a little bit better. Heather? In terms of how important it is to understand? Right. Uh, not really. If you look at if you look at the uh, at the breakdown you have in your in your uh, in handout here, you can see that our, our historical law or narrative those are all Old Testament books that are listed there. That's and the reason for that, by the way, is that the New Testament narrative we have is really a fairly cla- specifically classified subgenre of narrative. So we did, they didn't include it here in the historical narratives, but wisdom literature those are all Old Testament books. Right? Poetry, those are all Old Testament books. So, so far we've got three. Prophecy is all Old Testament books. That's four genres that are in the Old Testament. Apocalyptic is in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New. And then you have Gospel and Epistle. So really you have, you have only three genres in the New Testament and four in the, and five in the Old. Right? Uh-huh. Right. Well, uh, I, that 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 actually is a kickback to our, our our conversation from last week. No, I don't think that. I don't think that w- that will be true because the Old Testament is actually full of itself. So in the Old Testament, you see lots of references to earlier events in the Old Testament. Uh, the thing that you find in the in the New Testament that's helpful on that front, though, is that the New Testament does help when interpreting the Old. Because in the New Testament, you have all kinds of references. And I did pass out a sheet that had it was like four pages, really little type, of all the places in the New Testament that reference an Old Testament passage. And so in those, ta- in those cases, that's going to be really helpful in terms of understanding. But that's not really a question of genre as much as it is a question of how do, how do the New Testament writers understand the Old Testament? So I would say that um, understanding genre is equally important in the Old Testament and in the New. It's probably even more helpful in the Old because a lot of the New Testament, we're going to cover this, a lot of the New Testament is this epistle uh, type of uh, genre, which is actually much about as close as you get to modern writing as possible, right? It's a letter. We know how letters work. They're usually very logically oriented or written out as opposed to this kind of Hebrew poetry or Hebrew narrative, which kind of tends to be very cyclical and it can be kind of, it messes with our brains a little bit um, because we're just not used to the genre. Um, but so genre is, is probably uh, equally, at least equally helpful in both Testaments to understand it when you're starting out and looking at the passage. 
So, good question. So let's take a look at each. What I want to do now is I want to take a look at each of the classifications that we have here. We'll, we'll kind of work through them roughly in order um, that, the, that they appear in your chart here. The first one we're going to look at is narratives and histories. So this would be Old Testament, primarily Old Testament books, uh, although the principles here do apply to like the Gospels and Acts, for example, in the New Testament. But we're going to talk about them here. Um, we're going to look at those first. One would think that a religious text would be all about dogma and rules. Yet a substantial part of the Bible is history. Why is that? Because the Christian faith is all about things that happened in real life. In fact, if specific historical events didn't happen, the whole thing falls apart. Christianity isn't simply simply a philosophy. It's a faith based on history. So we believe that Jesus was a real man in in time and space, and even though he was not limited by those realities, he did live on earth at a certain time. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, and was resurrected, and all of these things are historical facts. If any of these facts are found to be untrue, the Christian religion would no longer be valid. So the Bible is a historical record of God's dealing with his people, and breaks down, if you want to look at it from a historical perspective, that historical record resolves around three major events in history. The exodus from Egypt, the exile in Babylon, and the death and resurrection of Jesus, and through that, the inauguration of the church. To that, I would probably also add creation as a fairly significant historical event. So creation, the exodus, exile, Jesus coming, and that that uh, entering into the church age as a result. The job of narrative is to tell us what happened. This may be good or bad. There are good events in history, bad events in history, good people in history, bad, his- bad people in history. But so its primary, <clears throat> one of its primary purposes is to tell us what happened and for God to be able to tell us why it happened the way that it did. So what is the events important to the grand storyline of redemption history? We may see this in the story itself or in authorial comments inserted into the storyline. And you can also look at the proportion of the story devoted to certain details in terms of understanding the importance of any given piece of the history that you're looking at. There is more here. Uh, if the, the more there is, obviously, in terms of the more time they spend covering a particular event, the more the author wants you to pay attention to it is the idea. Biblical histories and narratives are rich sources of study that display God's faithfulness to his people and his unchanging nature. One caution, though, this genre is not intended to record and explain every detail of the events, nor does it present events simply for us to mimic the characters uh, that are found in the storyline. Historical narratives, in in terms of a Bible genre, provide all that's necessary to study and understand that the great and grand nar- what the great and grand narrative of Scripture actually is, and that's God saving his people and judging his enemies through Jesus Christ. So that's the purpose of these histories. It's not to detail every, every piece of information. So you can't, again, this is one of those sitcom- things, you can't take the, the idea of a modern history and read the Old Testament histories as though it's going to be that. It's a different genre from that, and we have to read it understanding what the, what the kind of genre was and is. Okay? I want to I cover the next two um, genres together. 
the next two are wisdom and poetic writings. Now I want to do that, I want to look at them together because they're stylistically and structurally similar to each other. Although they're different in purpose and they're different in theme. It's getting to this theme idea that you mentioned earlier, Damien, right? <clears throat> so, so, they, so they differ in literary technique. The, the wisdom and poetic books of the Bible are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of, Solomon's and, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, and Lamentations. So we'll cover wisdom literature first. Wisdom literature focuses on instructions for successful living or reflections upon the reality of human existence. Broadly speaking, we see two types of wisdom literature in the Bible. We see proverbial wisdom, which is short, pithy sayings that state rules for personal happiness and welfare. Think morality, right? So Proverbs, especially you look at Proverbs 15 uh, for, for specific, specific examples if you want to go back and look at something. Um, the second type of wisdom literature we see is what we call speculative wisdom. So these are monologues like we see in Ecclesiastes or dialogues like we see in the book of Job. Um, which attempt to delve into problems like the meaning of existence or the relationship between God and man. So proverbial wisdom, mostly talking about morality, speculative wisdom, trying to take that morality and understand it in particular contexts. The wisdom literature contains both moral substance of true wisdom, Proverbs, and intellectual explorations of wise men seeking to understand the fundamental problems of human existence. So the starting point for understanding Old Testament wisdom literature is Proverbs. The wisdom of Proverbs concerns morality, the knowledge of how to live properly. It has a theological foundation, which is the reverence of God and understanding the wisdom that he particularly brings to bear. The book details the fundamentals of morality, the virtues of integrity, discipline, justice, common sense, and topics like that. And to show by way of contrast how the failure in how failure in life awaits the fool when he will not follow the wisdom that is given in the book of Proverbs. The book is strongly didactic, that it is that is it's geared heavily towards moral instruction, and it is designed to be more easily memorized than other passages of Scripture. With Proverbs as your starting point for wisdom literature, you begin to complement it with other wisdom books that offer the same truths but from different perspectives. So think of it like a, a booster rocket trying to get the space shuttle into, into orbit, right? You have a main thruster in the middle, that's Proverbs, and then you have engines on the sides that are assisting, and, and assisting with liftoff and boost, and those are books like Ecclesiastes and Job. So Ecclesiastes tests the wisdom of the wisdom claims of Proverbs through the lens of skepticism. Here you have King Solomon reflecting the wisdom of a man who's lived long, seen the world from all angles, and he describes the grief and sadness of the world from the perspective of an observer, noticing that anything lived in life apart from God is vanity. Work, knowledge, pleasure, power, if it doesn't have God, then it's vain. On the other side, you have Job, which tests the wisdom of Proverbs through his own awful suffering. He has a lived experience, as a, his is a lived experience, 
Job grasped the problems from within and from the, per- and from the perspective of a sufferer. But it's still in that, same, in that same mode where it's trying to take the wisdom of Proverbs and show what it looks like to live it out. Questions about wisdom literature? And we're flying pretty high. I'm not sure. It's not a question I thought about. Um, I'm sure there are ways to resolve that. I, I mean, I would need to. Uh, we would need to look at a specific example to be able to to really understand. But keep in mind that the thing to keep in mind is that wisdom literature is designed to provide principles through illustration. And I, we haven't gotten to the discussion of poetic literature yet. But we're kind of looking at these together-ish because they both fall into that, have similar stylistic categories that go along with them. And one of the things in in any kind of poetic literature is, you know, the use of, strong use of metaphor and figurative language. And so um, we do need to be careful not to take, you know, a particular phrase and then say, oh, well, that's similar to a phrase I see in the New Testament but it seems to mean something diff- really radically different here in the wisdom literature than it does in the New Testament. Don't be bothered by that. You need to, because one is probably kind of a, you know, an, an apostolic, uh, you know, statement that would be more, somewhat more factual than somebody trying to evoke a feeling or evoke a reaction in the in the person. Maybe about something that's not necessarily directly connected to death. But again, we'd have to look at particular passages to be able to, to untie that particular knot. And I don't, I don't have an overarching principle to think about on that front right now. Yeah, it's a good question, though. All right, let's take a look at poetic literature. Think more about questions. Ask them at the end if, you're, if more things occur to you. Uh, much of the Old Testament is poetic in spirit, in spirit and structure. We often find passages of elevated poetry and the use of powerful imagery. One way in which you can quickly tell if Scripture is poetic is by noticing an overlooked feature for, for in our English Bibles. If you look at the book of Psalms, for example, you'll see that the typeface and spacing is different than the rest of the books of the Bible. It does, although this, this clue does show up in other places when the, when the person is using a strongly poetic structure. Um, as a result, you see wider margins. The formatting is deliberate. Parallel lines help us to see the flow of the text. And especially since Hebrew poetry is different from English poetry in significant ways, this is just helpful to clue us in that we're looking at this poetic uh, type of of literature. And Proverbs is often arranged in a similar kind of a way. Short lines in couplets, we're going to talk about that in a minute, um, in in a way that's easy to memorize and has a, a strong kind of emotional reaction to it. Uh, the Hebrew language uh, was an ideal instrument for expressing poetic speech. Uh, it's very simple in its form, which allows you to combine multiple elements uh, to bring intensity of feeling or draw word pictures, so you have this pictorial power, um, and it allow for, allowed for great play within the imagination. So some of the features of poetic literature, specifically Hebrew poetic literature that we see in the Bible, uh, are figures, metaphors, and hyperboles are extremely common. 
So Psalm 91 is an example of that. If you look at that one, don't have time to go look at it this morning ourselves, but you can see a lot of this, you know, very strong, very high, very hyperbolic language that's designed to give us a certain sense of what might be going on there. Uh, secondly, um, uh, we see that the normal unit of Hebrew verse is the couplet of two or more parallel lines. So think of Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. That's one line. Whom shall I fear? That's the second line in the couplet. Or the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Line number one in the couplet. Line number two, of whom shall I be afraid? So it's arranged that way to help it be memorable and to and evoke a certain response. Uh, number three, Hebrew poetry is very rhythmical. It's one of its distinguishing features, actually. Rhythm in Hebrew poetry, however, is not confined to the balance of accent or beat in the line like it is in English poetry. So you, know, you have iambic pentameter, if you guys remember back to your high school. That was one of the, one of the kinds of poetry you probably studied. It has a very specific rhythm and beat and meter. <clears throat> the rhythm in Hebrew poetry is not quite like that. It's not quite as technical. Um, it has more to do with the meaning. Uh, so the meaning of the words and their position in the line are significant. It's a feature called parallelism. There are three different types of parallelism that we see in Hebrew poetry. We see synonymous parallelism, where the thought expressed in the first part of the verse is repeated in the second part in, a diff- in different but equivalent terms. So the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, from Psalm 19, verse 1. So that's synonymous parallelism. Antithetic parallelism is the opposite of that. It's where the thought in the first part of the verse is contrasted in the second half. So the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. That's from Proverbs 13.9. So in the first half, we have an idea. In the second half, the parallel uh, contrasts it. And then you have the third type of parallelism, which is common, which is called synthetic parallelism. And that's where the idea expressed in the first line of the verse is developed more or completed in the following lines. So here's an example. I laid down and slept. That's line number one. Line number two, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Or another example, uh, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people, line number one, line number two, who have set themselves against me all around. So the second, the second line in the parallel completes the first. That's from Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6. So why poetry, though? Why is this such a helpful genre? Poetry has the ability to convey greater meaning beyond simple facts. Consider the information in the following statement. Jesus Christ, who never sinned, died for sinners to pay the penalty they deserved. It's a true statement. But compare that to this. And this is from Psalm 53, uh, sorry, Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It's clear my first sentence doesn't come close to the perfect word of God. But do you see the point? The imagery in Isaiah conveys feeling, something tangible, something vivid and haunting, which is missing from the, from the sentence that I first uh, read to you. The, the first sentence is good, but the second one provides that extra feeling and meaning. Let's think about the Psalms. The Psalms were meant to be used for the purpose of worship. 
They were sung with musical accompaniment. Many are private prayers, where others were composed specifically for the public worship, especially the hymns of thanksgiving that were sung in the tabernacle or temple. It's in the Psalter that the soaring spirit of Hebrew poetry rises to a level never achieved by Israel's pagan neighbors. For the Hebrew worshipped God in spirit and in truth, and as he did so, he was giving expression to a personal experience of the living God in his soul. Four more genres to cover, and we'll, we'll stop for some questions at, in, as all along the way. So think about questions, and we'll, and we'll cover them at the end. So the four remaining that we have are the ones that, that are uh, the three that are mainly in the New Testament, and then we're going to talk about prophetic writings because again, there's a there's a there's a connection between prophetic and apocalyptic. So we have the Gospels and Acts as a genre, the Epistles as another genre, and the prophetic writings and apocalyptic literature that we'll kind of handle together. We'll go quickly through the first two because we actually covered them in a fair amount of detail last week. Uh, the Gospels and Acts. All four Gospels and Acts together provide a comprehensive understanding of Jesus, his life, and the early church. Yet each of these books were originally written to stand on their own as independent and sufficient accounts of Jesus and his followers. Though we can't dive into each book, let me give you a few overall comments that apply to all of them. So, in terms of the genre itself... The Gospel and Acts are slightly different, even though they both fall into the literary genre of narrative and the specific genre of gospel or the flowing out of the gospel. The Gospels themselves mirror a genre from the ancient world called bios, bios, an ancient biography. And unlike modern biographies that trace the physical and psychological and personal development of the subject, ancient biographies focus on key events in a person's life and draw the most attention to the object's teaching. Uh, So again, like I mentioned last week, if you read the the Gospels the way you would expect to read a modern uh, biography, you're going to find yourself being frustrated because it just has a different, the goals are not quite the same. Uh, Acts, on the other hand, is an example of what's called legitimization liter- uh, literature. It's a document that's intended to defend and bring legitimacy to the early church in its development. So that's a word about the, a slight nuance between the two. Even though they fall into the into that same genre of narrative, it's still telling a story, right? It's still telling the story of what's going on. They're slightly different than one another. Chron- chronology of the uh, with respect to these. While the Gospels are historical accounts, they are not always arranged chronologically. This is one of the areas where we might get messed up if we read it like it's a modern-day biography. They usually go chronologically through the person's life. Uh, Some are organized topically. For example, Mark tells of five controversies in a row in chapters 2 and 3. Those same controversies are spread out all the way across chapters 8 through 12 in Matthew. So they give them in different orders in, different to, in order to give focus to the particular things that they're wanting to draw attention to in the life of Christ. This is the way the bios were often written at the time, so it's not out of character or different than what they would have expected to be reading. And if we assume the Gospels, again, if we assume they're, they're written like 21st century histories, we're likely to be confused. Uh, third idea within this uh, uh, genre is harmony, what, what we call harmony. While each of the Gospels offer di- varying points of view, they all make the same point, that Jesus is the promised Messiah who died for our sins. And the Gospels are typically divided into two groups, though. Uh, 
We have the synoptic gospels, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, they overlap in many places. There's a lot, they tell a lot of the same stories, and they tell their stories in a similar fashion. They tell it kind of from the ground up, uh, gradually revealing the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. John, however, is a little bit different. So you have the synoptics as one group, and you have the Gospel of John in the other group by itself. Um, John tells the story from heaven down, if you will. Remember how John begins his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. He directly and explicitly presents the pre-incarnate Word becoming flesh. John also differs from the synoptics because he approaches the question of who Jesus is from a different point of view. He's looking at it from the point of view of knowing who Jesus is and then providing the support for it rather than gradually revealing it through the, through the course of the, of the narrative. And that finally brings us to the book of Acts. The book of Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off and records how this ragtag of disciples becomes the Christian church. Acts is the story of the gospel penetrating the Roman Empire despite stiff opposition through the boldness of witnesses drawing on God's spirit. In Acts, we find the missionary, find missionary speeches. It's going to be a subgenre within there. A call to believe the gospel and defense speeches, explanations of the Christian, uh, the Christian faith. So those are things to keep your um, uh, uh, antenna up for as you're reading through the book of Acts. Uh, we'll cover epistles next. Uh, epistles deal with the established church and their issues. An epistle is just another word for a letter. So they were all letters written from, one, from an author to a church or an individual. Uh, understanding how to study these books is very significant since how they constitute 21 of the 27 New Testament books. Paul wrote 13 of them. John wrote three. Peter wrote two. And James and Jude, uh, Jesus' brothers, wrote one each. Epistles are generally structured in three parts, an opening, a body, and a closing. The, part, the parts vary widely depending on which letter we're looking at. So uh, what we need to do is carefully trace the flow of thought in each individual letter in order to understand what it means. The key thing about studying the epistles is that they were written after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into heaven. So they're looking back on all of those events as completed, which no other books in the Bible save Revelation can do. As a result, they've played a major role in the formation of Christian theology throughout church history. They're also crucial to our understanding of the Old Testament. By, understand, by studying and understanding Old Testament allusions and citations in the epistles, we come to see how God fulfills his Old Testament promises in Christ. So how do we interpret them? Well, for the most part, interpretation is fairly straightforward since they're written from the same side of Jesus' earthly life as we live in. They're also written in a style that is reasonably familiar to us. Um, they're, they're, the style is straightforward and logical, typically. Uh, and it is, in this, it is this Bible genre that is most similar to modern day writing that we may uh, read today. One challenge, though, that you may face is that they're all written in a specific context and we're not always privy to what that context is. For example, 1 Corinthians seems to be written in response to a letter that Paul received from the church in Corinth, but we don't have that letter. Sometimes reading these letters feels like, a bit like constructing a full conversation by listening to just one side of it. So here's three things to keep in mind when interpreting an epistle. An understanding of context <clears throat> is useful in interpreting these letters. 
Now in our next class, we're going to talk about tools you can use to help determine what that context may have been or is. Things like commentaries. Uh, For now, just remember that the opening of the letter is often a place where we can establish at least some of what its context is. I'm writing to you about, or I want to talk to you about, is often in in the opening. We'll talk about more about that next week. At the same time, these letters speak with an amazing power right into our context without a lot of need for interpretation. It's as if God used them, <clears throat> caused them to be written knowing that we'd be reading them today, which of course he did. So the, that's why these letters are often easy, not as hard to interpret as it might initially seem. Yes, the context might always, not always be super well known, but the principles are still there and often not very far from the surface. Finally, remember the indicative imperative pattern that we discussed last week. Uh, We don't have time to go over it in detail, but look for the declarations of what God has done for us in Christ and then the commands and exhortations that flow from those realities. I'll I'll actually pause there and say, do we have any questions? Because we're about to go into the prophetic and apocalyptic literature section. Any questions quickly? Okay. When people think of prophecy, so this is we're going to talk about prophetic and apocalyptic literature. When people think of prophecy, they tend to think of foretelling the future. But that's actually not the bulk of prophecy in the Bible. The bulk of prophecy actually begins with forthtelling. In other words, God being forthright and telling his people what he wants them to hear. That's the majority of the prophetic writings. The prophets function at, uh, to shine a light on Israel's disobedience and highlight how their sins are against God's law. And in some cases, tell how their sins were predicted by previous prophecies. <clears throat> so their job is to declare, thus says the Lord, and to be the prosecutors of God's covenant. So if we want to understand the prophets, we would do well not to ignore the book that all of the prophets actually trace back to, which is the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book of the summary of the law. In Deuteronomy, Israel are told about the blessings that come with keeping keeping God's law and the curses that come with breaking it. When the prophets declare God's judgment on Israel for their idolatry and adultery, they're essentially reprising the curses from, from the book of Deuteronomy. But then, the prophets do at times turn to foretelling the future, looking forward and promising one of either salvation or judgment. Admittedly, prophecy can be a difficult genre to read, given its numerous literary forms and writing styles. Also, their predictions can be difficult because they have multiple levels of of fulfillment. So, for example, Isaiah chapter 7's virgin giving birth seemed to be fulfilled in the short term in Isaiah's fiancé eventually having a child, but we also know that this is fulfilled in the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus. In this sense, prophecies are like a mountain range that when one looks at it from a distance, it looks like one thing, but when you get up close, you actually see that there's mountains behind the mountains, right? In your handout, I've included eight tips for interpreting Old Testament prophecy. I'm actually not going to go over all of them now. We don't have time. Um, and I've mentioned, although I've mentioned some of them already, but I wanted you to have them so you can kind of get a sense for what maybe uh, help, helps for interpreting the genre might look like. Closely connected to, to prophetic literature, though, is this, is this uh, genre of apocalyptic literature. In that, we have portions of Dan, the book of Daniel, and then John's Revelation. Uh, those are the two primarily pro, uh, apoc- apocalyptic uh, books. Uh, and Revelation is by, by far the best example of the genre. 
Revelation is probably subject to more commentary, speculation, and interpretation than any other book of the Bible. In this book, we find everything from angels to the lake of fire and dragons. So what are we to make of these things? Some fearfully read Revelation as the book where God finally unleashes his wrath on mankind, while others simply avoid it because it's too confusing or just not important enough to be deliberately studied. But the the book of Revelation is God's word, which is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, just like all of the rest of Scripture. That's what's important for us to remember is that Revelation could quickly become a mere matter of debate about the role of ethnic Israel or the millennium. And while these are important topics to understand, and there are resources that we can direct you to to help understanding them, um, Revelation has greater and clearer themes that can encourage every believer. If we, keep fo- if we keep the following three tips in mind, I think we'll grasp those themes. And so here, th- here are three tips to help you understand the book of Revelation. First, understand the background. By the time John wrote Revelation, the gospel has been preached throughout the whole Asian province, as well as much of the Roman Empire. Many have believed and now are Christians. They all recall that Jesus promised right before he ascended that they would look to his return and establish, and he would return and establish his kingdom. The church has been looking and longing ever since for the consummation of God's plan of salvation. But in the view of many, nothing was happening. As a result, wickedness began to grow in the church and persecution was on the rise. Some conformed to the ways of the world and some began questioning God's ability to make good on his promises. The church was asking questions like, does God really care about us? Can he do anything about our suffering? And will he do anything about it? And it is this, this is the context into which John writes Revelation. So if we're going to try to understand suffering or God's sovereignty, this is a a wonderful book to delve into. We do not need to fear or mystify it. Number two. Understand, it, understand the genre of the book. It is apocalyptic literature, but it, it really is a combination of three genres. You do have apocalyptic for sure. You have prophetic, the fourth telling of, God's, of what God says. And it is also an epistle or a letter. So you have to remember that. It's easy to forget the last one especially. The apocalypse in Greek is is the Greek for to unveil or to make clear. So Revelation was not written to confuse, but to serve as a clear unveiling of God's plan to bring judgment on the wicked and to bring the faithful in Christ into his eternal kingdom. So apocalyptic literature functions as prophetic, speaking of what will happen in the future. While the Old Testament prophecies tend to foretell using realistic and literal language, apocalyptic literature tends to use highly symbolic language to foretell future events. So we need to be careful to read this book according to its genre, not interpreting symbolic language too literally. This is not history. And, many re- and though many read it as if it were tomorrow's new- newspaper printer- printed in advance, that is not what it is. When you do that, you risk taking conclusions out of, what, out of it that God never intended. So keep in mind what its, original, <clears throat> uh, uh, per, what its original purpose was, which is to satisfy those questions that the church was asking at the time through a letter to them. And you have to remember, too, that it was written in a genre that they would have understood 
uh, clearly. The, the apocalyptic genre was very popular at this time. So writing in this, in this way and in this fashion would have not thrown them for a loop in any way, shape, or form. Number three, the final one, understand the purpose of the book. Revelation is an epistle written to specific congregations. You can see those listed in Revelation 1, 10, and 11. So we need to understand that its purpose is for John to be writing to seven specific churches addressing the particular problems of those churches. That's what epistles do. They address the particular problems of a church. It is not an abstract treatment of the end times, but a practical book for local churches facing persecution. Its message is that we should understand our present trials not in light of this earth, but in light of heaven. It is also helpful to remember a concept I mentioned last week, that while the epistles were written for us and for our benefit, they were not written to us. So it is of vital importance that we keep the original hearer in mind when interpreting apocalyptic literature. Keeping things in mind helps us to be careful readers, not only of Revelation, but the entire Bible. And next week we're going to look at interpretive tools that will help our interpretation. We do have just one or two minutes if there's a quick question, but I'm, I'm afraid that took longer than I anticipated, so we don't have a lot of time for questions. But is there anything that's pressing from anyone? Yes, it was. Uh, more, yes, secular, yes, but more, it would have been religiously based. So, particularly the time between the Testaments, there was lots of apocalyptic literature written. That was not, that's not in the Bible. But it's, so in that sense, it's secular. But it's, but it's still religious in nature. Yeah. Yeah. Chris? Foretelling and forthtelling. Good. Forthtelling is just God being clear about what he expects. Thus says the Lord, you should do this. If you don't do this, I'm going to punish you. That's God telling his truths and foretelling is would be predicting the future. And you see both of them. So, all right, well, that's all we have time for today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have provided for us your Bible. Help us to study it, Lord, and help us to know it and love it more and more each time we look at it. Father, we ask that you would bless our time of worship and that you would be present with us as we do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.